welcome to Hit for Six. Michael, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Rob. Uh, I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm, I'm okay. I went for a quite ambitious run today, sort of across Richmond Park and Wimbledon Common, and it was it was very muddy and very wet. Uh, so I was going to say, in this weather, yeah, I you're know. tougher I, than me. I, I didn't realise it was quite as apocalyptic as it was i was i was in i was in bits to be honest by the end but i did feel good for it it felt very invigorating and refreshing uh but maybe i felt that way particularly after the warm shower but aside from that yeah i'm i'm well i mean all life basically wake up work go to sleep record a podcast watch cricket sleep eat there's not there's not many other things happening in life at the moment so it's it's a little bit humdrum but no, it's it's all right. It's fine, isn't it? You're tougher than me. I was going to go on a run today. I got new running trainers, and um, I went without. Did a walk. Did a, did a quick walk instead. Um, did some yoga inside, but no, did not do the run. So you're tougher than me. But you mentioned podcasting. That surely brightens up your day, especially when we've got an exciting guest like we do today. Yes, um, indeed, very much. So very excited to be speaking to uh, Simon Hughes. The Cricket analyst, you know, the analyst from Channel 4 back in the day. Of course, editor of the Cricketer magazine and um, has that podcast, the analyst podcast in association with the Cricketer with Simon Mann. Yeah, I, we found that. We didn't get to speak to him about this, but we found that we were all born at Kingston Hospital, Kingston-upon-Thames in the sort of southwest London hinterlands. We didn't actually bring up that factoid, did we? Never, never quite seen the right moment. No, but maybe next time, if he ever comes, comes on again, we can all revel in the fact that we're, we're all from the same neck of the woods. And in fact, he went to the same school as my father-in-law, I found out today. I'm rereading his, his Wikipedia page. But there we go. Didn't speak to him about, about that either. But yeah, it was, it was good to have him on. So why don't we have a listen to, um, to what we chatted about with him a couple of days ago. <laughs> Good evening, Simon. Good How, evening. You're, you're looking okay, given you've just done a quick cycle across West London. Does it count as um, my daily exercise? I think it does, actually. So even though it was about seven miles, yeah, it was my daily daily exercise. So it's good, good, good workout. Yeah, nice. H- how are you finding lockdown 3.0? Not bad, actually. Uh, you, I, my kids are teenagers and university students, so... They've been around a bit, which has actually been nice because normally they'd be away. Uh, I, I do a lot of work from home anyway. I do a lot of writing and broadcasting and so on, podcasting like you guys from home. So in many ways, it hasn't changed that much. Funnily enough, I'm not a big pub goer. I like restaurants a lot, but I also like cooking. So it actually hasn't been too bad. I mean, obviously, the weather's been rubbish when, in the summer. It was blissful almost with half my life lived in sort of town and half with my partner in Teddington near Bushy Park. And we kind of spend a bit of time looking at nature and uh, watching the swans and the cygnets grow up and, uh, you know, kind of interacting with wildlife quite a bit, actually. So in the beautiful weather in the summer of lockdown, it was pretty good. It's, yeah, it's tough for everyone at the moment, but I haven't got it too bad, I'd say. And have you been keeping fairly busy work-wise? You mentioned that you were already working from home quite a lot pre this, but how's yeah. it? Well, I've got a few things going on, actually. I'm, I'm lucky that I edit the Cricketer magazine, and that's been going from strength to strength. 
Uh, that's always interesting. I've been doing this weekly podcast, uh, The Analyst Inside Cricket, which I do with Simon Mann. And obviously, while the cricket's on, we do it daily. So that's quite entertaining. And also been running this thing called the Virtual Cricket Club, which is getting a, an England player usually on once a week on a Zoom call like this to chat about their life and their career, uh, what's happening in, in, in their life generally, in aid of the Professional Cricketers Trust which is you know, quite an important charity because it supports professional cricketers who aren't having it so good. So we're doing a kind of weekly show in aid of that. So that takes a little bit of planning and uh, a bit of preparation and a bit of, we have an after party. So the, the audience, so-called the virtual audience stay afterwards and chat. And then the other interesting thing I'm doing actually is um, working on a documentary to celebrate England winning the World Cup. And that's taken quite a long time to pull together, but we're just in the final throes of really assembling a schedule of interviews and getting together with the archive of the World Cup itself to create the script and bring out a documentary, you know, in a few months' time. But it takes quite a long time to, to put together and it's a new venture for me. So quite exciting, actually. Very exciting. I look forward to watching it. That um, The Cricket World Cup, that final, very quickly, where does that rank for you on amazing, particularly that, yeah, that, that day, amazing cricketing moments that you've witnessed in, in your lifetime? Well, top, because I went to two previous World Cup finals, which England lost, the 79 one and the 92 one. And... The Ashes of 2005 was huge because England hadn't won the Ashes for you know 20 years or so. And it was an epic series, 2005. And I was very actively engaged in it because I was working on Channel 4 and that was the last year of cricket on terrestrial TV as well. So that was a climax. And the oval, when the umpires took the bales off to announce it was a draw and England had retained the Ashes, England had regained the Ashes, sorry, uh, was was like hairs on the back of your neck time, listening to the crowd singing Hope and Glory and all that. But I think the World Cup, because it was such an iconic moment in time and it was such a, a fluctuating match and you could never tell who was going to win and England won from the most unlikely situation and there were so many bizarre things that happened. And also, I'd followed that England side pretty closely for the previous few years went on a few tours, both home and away, got to know some of the players quite well, like Owen Morgan and Josh Butler and to a lesser extent, Ben Stokes. So I was sort of quite involved with that whole campaign. Andrew Strauss was a pretty good mate and he was the architect of it all. So, you know, overall, that probably ranks the highest just because it was such an incredible climax to a 44 years of hurt, really. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so can we go back a bit, Simon? So like, I've actually read your your first cricket book, A Lot of Hard Yakka, is my absolute favourite cricket book of all time. And I bought... I'm, I'm impressed. How old are you? Uh, I'm 26, but my dad well, gave that's it. That's very good. If I can attract a 26-year-old to read that, that's, I'm impressed. My dad, my dad gave it to me as a teenager and I bore Rob about it all the time, honestly. like Right. Yeah, Simon, just to be clear, he is an evangelist for this book. Wow. Uh, he, he really does love it. He so should be on. my agent then. Yeah, far away. 
I think more people need to read it. But anyway, I've read it, and so I feel like I know your career quite well. But I wanted to ask, well, firstly, how did you first get into cricket? Yeah, uh, I was actually living in Ealing, and the uh, we were, I used to muck around with my dad in the back garden when I was about seven or eight. Uh, he he liked cricket, but it wasn't he wasn't a particularly good player. But we had a bit of a hit around in the garden, and one day we were in the in the garden at the weekend, and there was this sort of strange noise like someone being strangled in the distance it was a sort of like that and it sounded like someone being murdered and then then it happened again about five minutes later and we thought what's that and we realized it was coming from the cricket ground at the top of the road <laughs> Ealing Cricket Club so we went up to have a look and there was this big orange haired fast bowler keep appealing for LBW like a sort of strangled cat and just we just sort of looked at it and it was a really nice traditional old ground with a lovely old pavilion and a nice atmosphere and so from then on I just kind of got interested and I started watching cricket on telly and then aged 11 I joined the club and actually had to lie about my age because they didn't take anybody under 12 but I'd kind of shown a bit of interest and my dad used to pick us up from school after uh, in the summer and take us to the park and play and stuff so I sort of got interested then joined the club. I had to lie about my age and say I was 11, uh, 12 when I was actually 11. Joined the club and that club was the most wonderful uh, originator of my interest, really. It was a brilliant uh, atmosphere there. They were a really good team. They were great people. They had a, a really aggressive uh, attitude to playing. Uh, there were hundreds of Colts that came down on a Friday night and that was where I lived for really the whole summer, Friday nights at Ealing Cricket Club. So that's how it started, really. And then you went on to be picked up by Middlesex and you went, you know, as a young guy into a team containing a lot of big names, you know, Gatting, Embry, Edmonds, um, Wayne Daniel, and, and a team that was having kind of, it seemed to, for the first few years of your career, just non-stop success in terms of just winning things back to back. And you were playing quite a big role in it as a new guy into the team. How was that? Well, it... it... It, it all happened very quickly. Uh, I came down from university uh, my first year at Durham and had played quite well in the, in the university side that summer, sort of early season. And I came down to Middlesex, played a few games in the seconds, and I just got loads of wickets. And I, I didn't really know how. I, I swung the ball both ways, bowled at a reasonable pace. I was quite adventurous. I tried things. You know, I was a sort of, uh, embryonic Jimmy Anderson who never got that good but that's what I tried to bowl like his spell in the World Cup in 2003 reminded me a bit of myself uh, obviously a much better version uh, just bowling big hooping swingers and trying to bowl batsmen out is great fun and that worked in the seconds so then I got the call up to the first and it sort of worked in the first as well and uh, the, the great thing is you had Mike Brearley as captain then who was just brilliant at incorporating every different character and every different age and every different racial group into the team. Uh, in, in about my third game, I remember he asked me when knots were about 300 for four and Richard Hadley was knocking it around at number six and we couldn't get a wicket for a while. He said to me, who do you think should bowl? He came up to me and said, who do you think should bowl? And I said, why are you asking me? You're the England captain. And he said, I, I know that I'm the captain, but I'd like to know what you think. You're part of the team. Tell us what you think. So I said, well, um, I think Norman Cowens should bowl. 
thinking he wouldn't take any notice. He did. He put Norman Cowens on next over. It didn't work very well. Hadley got a double hundred. But, it, you know, it was the kind of... It was his way of making me feel important and belonging. And, you know, from then on, I just felt like I was part of that team. A great bunch of characters. Very lucky to play with so many brilliant cricketers and entertaining people. I think it, it made me realise that that famous quote from Steve Archibald, the Spurs and Scotland footballer, who said, team spirit is an illusion you're only glimpse when you win. And it's sort of true. You know, you, you, know it doesn't have, you don't have to all get on to play well. We were bonded by the desire to win and play attacking cricket. And in a way, I'd got that from my early days at Ealing, who played attacking cricket as well. So it was just great fun. It was stressful at times. We... we you know, we were in cup finals and obviously pushing for championships and th there was a high expectation. But there were so many good cricketers and there was so much good advice uh, as well from the players. You learnt on your feet. Oh, it was just uh, it was just an absolute kind of joyride, really. And, and there were, as I say, there were lots of stressful moments. But in the main, it was just hugely entertaining and very competitive. Do you have a particular career highlights where you think that that was my best performance or that that was my the pinnacle best moment probably 1986 Benson Hedges final where I was sort of on the edge of being tipped for England and we played Kent and uh, it was a difficult pitch not an easy pitch and I came on to bowl I think after Cowans and Daniel so it was quite a you know an act to follow really Norman Cowens was still an England player and Daniel was obviously a fearsome West Indian fast bowler. And I came on first change and, you know, didn't want to let the side down in a big final at Lords, which in those days was like not quite the IPL final, but it was, it was a big, big deal. Uh, you know, massive packed house and big audience on telly. And I bowled superbly. And I remember taking, uh, got Chris Cowdery out caught brilliantly by John Embritt, slip, dived full length, caught it one-handed. I then had to come on and bowl at the end when they needed about 12 to win the last over and it was pouring with rain and I just couldn't hold the ball at all and my feet were sort of slipping all over the place. But I sort of believed that I could do it and I had a bit of a reputation for being a good death bowler and I, I stuck to what I knew. Uh, third ball went for six into the grandstand but I still felt we could win and we did. And I suppose that was where I delivered both a really good penetrating spell with a fairly new ball and got wickets and then, you know, held my nerve at the end. So probably that game. Yeah, I, and, you, and you had that reputation as a death bowler, right? Because you could bowl the Yorker. Did you enjoy being a death bowler? Well, I, I also developed a slower ball, which wasn't quite as good as Franklin Stevenson's, but it was nearly as good. And I, I learned it from watching both of them in an early test match, I mean, Botham was my kind of hero, really. And I watched him bowl in you know the ashes of the late 70s and bowl all sorts of different deliveries, including this really good slower ball. So I copied that. And I think, you know, the other highlight of my life was probably getting him out with it. I deceived him with a slower ball and he spooned it to cover and then marched off and said to John Embry on the boundary, that's how you bowl an off break and walked off into the pavilion. So I, I enjoyed the challenge, actually, of big hitting batsmen. And my ploy was big guys with big back lifts 
I, I enjoyed that challenge. I would have loved T20 because what I used to do was I'd bowl a bouncer and my bouncer was quite quick. I hit people and then I would probably bowl a Yorker next and I used to drop my arm a little bit so it was a bit more slingy and I could get it pretty accurate and then I'd bowl a slur ball and I, I can't remember the number of big hitting batsmen who just you know flinched against the bouncer dug out the York and then thought right I'm having him now bowled the slur ball and maybe halfway through their shot before the ball arrived and spooned it straight up in the air so yeah I, I loved one day cricket actually and if you look at my record it's probably better than my first class record really because I had variety and I enjoyed the challenge of uh, stopping big hitters Obviously, at the moment, cricket's going down a, a path of the real rise of 2020. Test match cricket, not quite in full crisis mode, but popularity waning in certain parts of the world. For you personally, maybe a better limited overs player, just said so, but do you prefer the limited overs game to the longer format or do you like them both equally? I think that there's room for both. I, I, it depends on my mood, really. You know, it's like some nights you like, it's nice to have a, subtle fish dish you know with lots of the trimmings and other nights it's nice to have a big hot curry isn't it I mean it is like food cricket is it's got infinite variety you know a test match like we've just seen in fact I was covering the Australia India test series as well for BT and I was I stayed up all night watching that in a tiny little studio in Stratford you know everyone said oh, how do you stay awake I mean the cricket was brilliant and then we have England Sri Lanka which has also been compelling to watch so I love Test cricket, but I also love T20, the way it's, you know, cricket without the boring bits, if you like. And it, it attracts a completely different audience. The range and repertoire of shots that the batsmen have discovered through T20 has enhanced Test cricket as well. You know, innings like that Stokes innings at Headingley had everything. It had, you know, Test match accumulation and... T20 improvisation it was just a brilliant mixture of the two in a way that encapsulated the, the joy of the game that you can play both those different formats in the same format and I just think there's a place for both we may have too many formats now with the 100 coming in as well but I think I think T20 is absolutely brilliant and in fact I played it as a kid playing for, for Ealing we used to have a T20 tournament on a Thursday night at the down at the club starting at six o'clock at night. That was hilarious fun. Great. And what you said about that Stokes innings, I suppose it was kind of similar with that India run chase towards the end, Washington Sundar, Rishabh Pant, playing attacking cricket in a way that maybe 30, 40 years ago, they wouldn't have the confidence to play. Well, and look at England's run chase against Sri Lanka a couple of days ago, 160 on a turning pitch. Those guys, Root, Butler, Bairstow in particular, the skill levels of those shots were fantastic. And in, in a way, it's funny because it, it showed how difficult it is to play those shots consistently because Root got out in the second innings, sweeping one onto his stumps. But, you know, that batting in the first two uh, innings of that series, Root, the double 100 and 180, two, two of the best innings I've ever seen an England batsman play in spinning conditions. And a lot of that skill is born out of T20 having to get on with it. Lots of spinners at T20s, in a way, rejuvenated spin. And someone like Root receives a lot of it, phases a lot of it, has to work out how to score off it. It was just a brilliant exhibition of, of batsmanship. I was struck by um, Michael Afton 
while commentating describing the reverse sweep as a safe shot you know and it is a very mm-hmm. safe shot for someone like Johnny Bairstow it's a safe way to manipulate the field because he's practiced those skills so much whereas when KP brought it out quite a while ago now but the consternation was huge mm-hmm. now it's just an accepted safe shot and I mean there's a really well they, they practice it so much and uh, it's become you know much more accepted that you know and I think actually that also uh, cricketers have been encouraged to you know develop other sports while they're growing up like so if you look at say de Villiers or Butler they played a lot of tennis as well as cricket and rugby and golf and everything you know and you can see that the other sports being brought into their their play you know there's the big kind of follow through uh, that comes out of golf and there's the backhanded shots that comes out of tennis and so I think multi-sports uh, players are, are, may have, maybe have an advantage in batting now because, you know, all those shots are, are totally accepted and almost, you almost need them, really. I, I saw a graphic on, along those lines. I think it was the top 10 batsmen in World 2020 cricket. Six of them have played hockey to a high standard mm, as right. a top 18. And you see that in, in the routine. It's Ababa Azam and Kohli and... Not that he's in the top ten in the world, but Tom Banton, you can see the hockey player and how he sweeps and, and plays to the leg side. Yeah. And it's striking. Uh, quickly back to your, your playing career, Simon. You mentioned that Benson Hedges final. You were on the cusp of playing for England. Obviously, mm. in the end, that call never came. Reflections on that? Well, I I was tipped for England a couple of times. I to be frank, I didn't think I was good enough. And I even though the likes of Mike Brearley and people like that said, yeah, you, 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 know, you should be in the, you're, you're good enough. I didn't think I was. And I didn't think I was actually mainly because I was actually, I thought I was too short. So, you know, I was only five foot nine, five foot 10 and against top players on flat pitches, I found it difficult to bowl a length that would contain them. So when I played against Graham Gooch, for instance, he just hit me on the up off my length. And, and then if I dropped short, he pulled and cut. So I didn't think I had quite the game for test cricket. I could have played one day internationals out there without any doubt. And there weren't as many of those around then. And they just played the test team. You know, they didn't bring in different players for one day internationals very often. But I do think probably that because I didn't think I was good enough, I therefore didn't really, I wasn't dedicated enough. Uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was, a, a, it was a joy ride. I, I was late. I, my kit was in three carrier bags. You know, I wore odd boots. I was disorganised. I didn't probably dedicate myself enough. I mean, I was fit, actually. I always stayed fit and I never kind of broke down, really. But, uh, and, you know, never got kind of out of condition or anything. But I stayed up too late. Didn't focus enough on discipline. or And, I, and actually, the game... From Mike Brealy's era, when he uh, encouraged adventure and self-expression, I think the game changed a bit, and more there was more expectation of being disciplined and professional in a way. And I didn't it didn't quite fit with my attitude, and that's that's my fault. But don't regret it really. Reading the book, a lot of it comes across as a bit of a joyride, quite an adrenaline fueled few years. And there doesn't seem to be that much of you focusing on your own game, which I think you mentioned mm. sometimes captains would say, oh, why don't you think about this? And so for me, it's incredibly interesting 
and I guess surprising maybe to your younger self that you then went into becoming a cricket TV analyst. Because mm. I remember the story about mm. how quite late into your career in a park abroad, you finally decided to mark a run out. So you'd stop bowling no balls. And that's yeah, a I, analyst. No, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a good observation. I think I was on a voyage of discovery, really. Um, you know, I was always a one who wanted to experiment and, yeah, I mean, you know, th th that fact, the fact that I know balled a lot and really only worked out a run-up when I was about 29 is indicative of my lack of discipline. But I experimented with different run-ups. And so I think that, in a way, I, my whole career was a sort of experimentation in, in batting as well. You know, I wasn't the worst batsman, actually, even though I didn't have a particularly good average, but I kept giving, giving my innings away when I got to 15 or 20 or something. And... Uh, I think that the reason why it worked to be the analyst on telly was because I was always really interested in the game. Um, I liked analysing batsmen. And I think actually a lot of the best analysts of the game are bowlers because firstly, they've got to analyse batsmen to get them out. And secondly, they've got to bat themselves. So you've got to try and work out a method, even though you might not be that talented. So... I think, you know, it was a natural progression. And actually, you know, what I often used to do was I, I loved the challenge of people who came up to me and said, what do you do for a living? And I say, I was a cricketer. And they go, well, that's cricket's boring. And I go, it's not. I'll show you. And I invited people to games. You know, you had the calling card of Lords, which is a bit of an advantage. I mean, if, if I was inviting them to Northampton, with due respect to Northampton, they might not have come. But Lords was quite an attractive proposition. So I'd sit with them and point out stuff and explain things and do some jargon busting. So it was a sort of natural progression, really, to do it on telly. How did that come about that you got, got the gig on TV? Because for me, growing up, Channel 4, you were the analyst. Yeah, I, I, I think those are the happiest times, really, because I found a, a niche there. It came about because I'd actually worked for the BBC before, and I was just the sort of pitch side reporter. And there wasn't much to do really during the game. I was only occupied really at the end of play or sometimes at tea. So the rest of the day, I'd be roaming around the ground, finding different places to watch the game from. And there wasn't any room in the commentary box. So sometimes I used to sit in the trucks where they did all the replays. And I got to know the production team and looked at the, the way they did the replays and you know cut the pictures and stuff and I got quite interested in that and I saw ways of explaining the game and actually Richie Benno was a very uh, good influence because he started saying I've read this piece about reverse swing and uh, you know you should do a piece on that and put it in the tea interval and I, I got kind of quite motivated by him so I started making a few little features and then when Channel 4 almost outrageously stole the rights from the BBC. And the BBC actually were pretty lazy, to be honest. Uh, a bit, they were a bit complacent and they deserved to lose the rights to Channel 4. And when Channel 4 got them, I approached them immediately and I said, look, I think we can do something with, these, uh, with, with this game and make it more interesting and explain it. And there's a lot of stuff and I want to demystify it and create a, 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 an intrigue for a new audience. And so it was a meeting of minds, and that's that's how it came about, really. I'm not sure there's ever going to be a more watched and bought DVD of cricket than 2005 Ashes. So, mm. to, you know, mortalised on that's pretty good. Um, me and my dad both got that for Christmas that year, and I've watched mine a lot since. 
Um, just to go back, Simon, you mentioned how probably final one for us before we wrap up. Um, but a, I'd like to end a funny story I read. You mentioned how in your career you went from really, who was like really encouraging, you know, do all these exciting things, try new things to a slightly more disciplined setup, maybe under Mike Gatting later as a captain of the Middlesex. And w- would you mind telling us that story about, I think you had Mike Gatting kit in your car and along with another players. And then mm. I think you were slightly late and you ended up. It was, um, it was a three day match at Bath with the Sunday league game at Worcester. Uh, as you often did, you know, weird setup, weird scheduling. And so the, the Saturday match was at, against Somerset at Bath. And most of the players just did a little trundle up the M5 to Worcester from Bath and stayed in Worcester on the Saturday night for the Sunday league game. But I just met a girl who I subsequently married and there was a Roslyn Park rugby club ball that night so I went back to the ball with her and inevitably stayed out far too late Uh, went back to my house in London with her intending to drive to Worcester the next morning for the Sunday league game which started at 1.30 and I overslept and then driving to Worcester which in those days wasn't that easy because the M40 hadn't been extended so you're driving through little villages like Broadway and Evesham and places like that. And I was driving madly through these country lanes on a Sunday, desperately trying to get to Worcester in time. And I had a puncture and it took me 15, 20 minutes to fix it. And I sort of frantically found a phone box and phoned the ground and said, I'm running late and what. Got to the ground for the one thirty start at about 10 past one with Mike Gatting and John Emery, the vice captain's kit in my car. So they hadn't even been able to warm up or anything. Mike Gatting had to toss up, you know, in his blazer and hadn't been able to do any nets or anything. Uh, So that wasn't very good. And then it was on telly that game. And Phil Edmonds, who was normally uh, in the team, wasn't, he had a contract that he didn't have to play on Sundays. So uh, he was in the commentary team and I bowled pretty badly. I was pretty stressed and I bowled badly and got whacked around by both of them and Hick. And after one terrible over, cost about 12, Phil Edmonds said on BBC Two commentary, well, that was another poor over by Simon Hughes, but he's probably got another party to go to tonight. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it kind of encapsulated uh, my slightly chaotic life. You know, actually, uh, I, I did pretty well overall. I'm quite, you know, as I say, I did, I had some pretty good one day figures. I took nearly 500 wickets in first class probably at a slightly higher average than I should have done. But that was just lack of discipline. And, you know, I played in nine trophy winning teams, four championships and five cups. So, you know, I'm proud of that, actually. And also people say, well, like boycotts, well, you couldn't bat. But I tell you what, averaging 11 against the bowlers around the county circuit, like Marshall, Garner, Ambrose, Donald, Imran Khan, Waka Yunis, Wazim Akram, etc. I'm actually quite, I'm quite proud of averaging 11. Yeah, yeah it's better than my average playing Surrey Div 5 cricket. So I think, yeah, every reason to be proud of an average like that. Um, Simon, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for giving up. That's, that's, a, that, that's a pleasure. Yeah. You, could just, um, you could just say one thing, you could just plug one thing, which is that uh, in this virtual cricket club I've created, uh, we've got Ian Botham on next Thursday doing a wine tasting. And 
you can join the club for six pounds, which is four live events per mm-hmm. month. Uh, and it includes a wine tasting and reminiscences of the 81 Ashes with Ian Botham next Thursday, the 4th of February. The way to get tickets is worldsbestcricketclub.com. I didn't come up with the name. It was, you mentioned it right at the beginning, Simon. It was going to be one of my questions because I've seen you tweet about the World's Best Cricket Club a lot. and I About, about 150 times. I, didn't, I did not make up the name, but somebody said, assured me that it was catchy. So I said, OK. Time. Well, and actually, up, the it? people we've had, I mean, actually, the people we've had on, we've had Root, Wood, Broad, uh, Alistair Cook, obviously both of them in the future, Strauss, uh, and we've had an absolute job, Joss Butler, Graham Swan, you know, we've had a cast of brilliant cricketers. So, in a way, it is the world's best cricket well, club. If you put them all on the pitch together, I think it definitely would be. In their prime, of course. Um, yeah. Right, I've got to go. Um, nice to meet you both anyway, and um, keep me tagged in, yeah? Yeah. Cheers. All right, thanks. Cheers. Well, what an absolute thrill to speak to the author of the best cricket book of all time, which Rob still refused to read, a lot of hard yakka. Um, but no, that was really good. Um, nice, sharp, quick interview, but I think pretty revealing and really interesting, actually, to hear someone talk about one day cricket slightly wistfully in that one day T20 cricket because it wasn't quite, you know, around like it is now in his, in his time. And he would have been such a good bowler for it. And I never really thought about him in that way. So that was really interesting insights again. Did you enjoy it, Rob? Yeah, I, I did. It was, uh, it, it, it was really good. It was interesting. He's quite an um, interesting guy. How he, a lot of people say, oh, I like test cricket more, but I also like, 2020 cricket. We've had a few guests say that. Sam Sheringham said that. Bitha Shan said that. But with Simon, it really felt like he likes 2020 cricket equally to Test cricket. He really loves the limited form of the game. I mean, doesn't see it as a slightly less good but still enjoyable game, which is kind of how I feel about it. For him, it really is of, of equal merit, worth, value, which is interesting because in one sense, you think he's he's been around for a while. He edits the Cricketer magazine, so you feel maybe he's a uh, a voice of more old school cricket, but in many ways, he, he really embraces the new, uh, you know, I'm sure he's well up for, for the hundred and, and other bits and bobs. So I was struck by that. And, and all in all, very kind of him to come on. And um, worth saying a little uh, thank you to Joe Stevenson, who's a um, friend of the pod, who, who kind of linked us up with Simon. Um, so very grateful for that. And yeah, it was, it was another great way to spend the lockdown evening talking Absolutely. to someone I've just seen on the telly talking about cricket, but having a little chat with him over over Zoom about the sport we all love. Absolutely. And to any other friends of the pod, listeners of the pod, if you know any good cricketing guests that you could link us up with, please let us know, because we're absolutely shameless. We will go after any connection. It could be, you know, your brother's wife's uncle. It doesn't matter. We we would love to speak to them um, if they've got anything to do with cricket. And I think also we should mention, Rob, um, as Simon did in the pod, the world's best cricket club, his virtual cricket club that he runs. And they've got an exciting event this Thursday, Thursday, February the 4th, where they've got Ian Bofin coming to do a virtual wine tasting. And I'm sure that'd be really good. So people should have a look at that. So you can go on Simon's Twitter or worldsbestcreateclub.com to check that out. Yeah, indeed. And I've, I've actually got my wife, Sophia, here, here in the room with me. And when she heard that, she gave me a look of, oh, oh can I join? Can I come along? An event? Um, Something to do? Yeah, an event, wine, wine tasting. Um, um, but yeah, no, that sounds great. And it's an amazing initiative, actually, that quite a cool thing he's, he's helped put, put together and build together. So we'll 
we'll share we'll share a link to it as well on, on our social media in the coming days so so keep an eye out for that but yeah uh, look michael all the best next time we catch up and we'll be talking about england india upcoming of course i wrote a little blog piece about that this morning and that we released so do do give that a read if you like to you can hear my sort of two cents on how where i think england are at the moment and the test that playing india away will will pose but we'll catch up before that first test on friday the 5th uh, to kind of think about how the England are going to get on. But otherwise, stay safe. Enjoy the second half of All The Shots game and see you soon. All right. Cheers, Rob. See you later.